I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo is here with Sam Watson and our special friend, our special guest, Brad Spielberger of PFF. Today, we're breaking down all things free agency. Sam, don't give me that look. I know you're mad I'm not sitting next to you today. No, no, I'm just uh, entertained by your use of the term special friend. I think that's uh, just that, I don't think that was the phrase you're, you're shooting for there. But, you know, you be you. It's time. Well, it's time to do free agency. Is that okay? Am I going to get sued again? Probably, yeah. By saying Bruce, it's time? Bruce coming right down upon us right now with a lawsuit. Yeah, we're, we're in trouble now. Look, I've got, uh, I've got a medical issue here today. So I decided not to come in, and you're just really mad that I'm not sitting in the studio with you. I could tell. I could see it on your face. I'm happy you're not potentially infecting me with whatever, you know, disease you're carrying over there. Well, we're going we're gonna to battle through. Brad, welcome. Appreciate you joining us, buddy. Yeah, I'm excited to join the Steve Palazzolo flu game. You know, a little Michael Jordan <laughs> action going on. But, yeah, happy to be here again to talk free agency. I'll battle through, but I might just, you know, pass the ball to you as much as possible. So yeah, we did this. We did this last year. We previewed free agency. It's uh, it's always good. You know, Brad. Uh, I think it's good to just kind of recap your background too, and and why we're listening to you when it comes to free agency and contracts and all that stuff. So so give your give your quick resume really quick for all of our listeners. Yeah. So uh, came over to PFF. It's been you know, almost two years now, which is uh, kind of crazy to say. But came from a website called OverTheCap.com, which is a website that. NFL teams, agents, and, and us as well at PFF use for all of our salary cap and contract information. And so, um, you know, it was doing stuff like this, projecting contracts, analyzing position markets, analyzing how they grew or, or regressed year to year, stuff like that. Um, and of course, now, you know, incorporating our great PFF data to continue with those ventures. So you can see a lot of uh, Brad stuff. We've, uh, we have our top 200 free agent list over at PFF.com. There are contract projections in there. Sam and I also worked on this list, but Brad worked on the contract uh, piece of that. And that's what we're going to break down today. So as we head into free agency about less than a month away from when it's going to start. And as we were putting this list together, it was like, ah, it's tough to, uh, after the top 20 or so, it's tough to really rank the next uh, 30 or 40 players. What are your overall thoughts on this class here, Brad? Yeah, you know, it is an interesting class. Um, I think the top also has now lost a handful of good players to injury, you know, guys like Chris Godwin. And then you said it is kind of, it's tough between, you know, 25 and, and 55, 60. It's kind of, you could probably make a case for each guy, but I do think there is decent depth. And I think, you know, my approach to free agency would be that I go for depth anyway. So not having marquee free agents is, is not necessarily a bad thing because I think the smart teams are, are looking for those value deals in the middle in the second wave, you know, anyway. Yeah, I think that's always where the smart money is in free agency anyway is, you know, these under the radar signings, these guys that are not necessarily the the high end that are 
depth players that are guys you can add to the team for a relatively low amount of cash, but that make a massive impact next year. So, like, overall, relative to the last few seasons, how strong do you think this draft class or this uh, free agent class is? I think it's a bit weaker. I think last year, I think we'd all agree going through the rankings. I think we were a bigger fan of at least the top end guys. And then there were still um, some solid players. The issue is when you look at our top five and we have two edge rushers that are 32 years old and Von Miller and, and you know, um, Chandler Jones, like, and there's a lot of them. I mean, one of our top interior defenders is Akeem Hicks. He's also that age, um, you know, the offensive line, it's more swing tackle, older players. So, go, you know, I can go down the list, but I, yeah, I don't think it's a great class if we were to compare historically. Do you, um, when you're looking at this class too, uh, so we have a top 200, as I said, over at pff.com, but there's always movement, right? There's releases, there are potential trades. We know that the QB carousel is going to be crazy potentially, but uh, is there anything with the way the market is or the way the salary cap is structured that would indicate, hey, there's going to be a whole bunch of players released or so teams that have to make drastic improvements this offseason. Do they even have the capacity to do that when you're looking at a weaker free agent class? Or do we think we're going to see a lot more players added to this in the coming weeks with the usual you know, influx of releases and various things like that? Yeah, so it's obviously not as bad as last offseason with the you know the salary cap drop, but I do think folks have kind of now overestimated how much better things have really gotten for this year. Um, yes, the salary cap jumps now to 208 million from 182, so a huge leap there. But it's still the NFL and the teams and the owners, most importantly, are still kind of taking their lumps a little bit and are still dealing with you know overcoming the revenue shortfalls from 2020 so i think it will be there there will still be some cuts i think there will still be some some cap casualties for some good players you know guys last year like a morgan moses like a kyle fuller guys that kind of surprised us you know ignoring how they did this season but i think there will still be some of that um maybe not as drastic but yeah i think it's going to be tough for some clubs to make a bunch of splash plays because they had to push cap into 2022 and into 2023 just to make it out of this season. And then the other thing that always comes up with free agent lists and rankings and all those kinds of things is like how many of these names are even going to hit free agency? How many of these guys are going to be casualties of the franchise tag and, and re-signings and, and locked up? You know, we look at these, even some of these marquee names and you're like, realistically, that guy's not actually hitting the market. Yeah, and that's, a, and that's a big issue, too, with a lot of the, the younger players that you go after. I mean, a guy like Jesse Bates in Cincinnati, I, I think there is literally an 100% chance he gets franchise tagged. Um, even, you know, my favorite position group is probably the tight end group. It could have been a little bit stronger if maybe Dallas Goddard or, or you know, Mark Andrews hit the market, but still a very strong tight end group. But I think Dalton Schultz in Dallas is a very strong franchise tag candidate. I even think maybe a David Njoku in Cleveland could get a franchise tag just because of how cheap that tight end tag is. So that is a bit of an issue. And then maybe even a guy like a J.C. Jackson in New England at cornerback could get the tag. Um, at least for a receiver, though, I think more receivers will reach the market. You know, Allen Robinson's not getting another tag. I think Godwin with the injury now will avoid the tag. So some positions will be better, but I do think some young players will not hit the market. And, and Adams, Devontae Adams in particular, right? He's, he's going to get tagged, right? It, it just makes, I've, I've said before, it makes no sense to me whatsoever that they let him hit the market regardless of who the quarterback is, right? If Aaron Rodgers stays, obviously Aaron Rodgers wants his number one target still there. And, you know, we've been talking for years that 
outside of Devontae Adams, Aaron Rodgers doesn't have enough to work with. So obviously, if you get rid of Adams, there's just there's nothing there. And then if Rodgers somehow leaves and they toss the keys to Jordan Love, you can't give Jordan Love the offense minus Devontae Adams and say, hey, make this work, kid. Good luck. So it seems to me that either way, he has to be staying in Green Bay, right? hundred percent, or at least he's hundred percent getting franchise tagged, and then they can control if they do trade him on the tag, you know where he goes. So, yeah, will he hit free agency? I think again, probably zero percent chance. Right. With Adam, so uh, I want to back up really quick in a minute and get into your projected contracts and where that comes from. But first, the PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on all these roster moves we're discussing, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow? Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get it, get started here at westernsouthern.com slash PFF. So Brad, in, in our free agent list, you have these projected contracts and all that stuff. For Adams, for instance, you say, hey, four years, 23.25 million dollars. So I know you're never going to miss and that's going to be perfect no matter what. But our, uh, how do how do you come up with that? And again, obviously it's not going to be perfect. How close have you been recently? Like what is your process for some of those projected contracts historically? Yeah. So just to start with Adams in particular, um, generally it's looking at, you know, a ton of data, a ton of numbers, and then boiling that down. And then you basically, you find statistical comps for players going into their contract years and then you basically say, okay, they signed this deal. This player shows they're very similar based on both traditional stats, but also now, of course, are, are stuff like war and a lot of PFF metrics. You know, and then you say, therefore, you know, this guy should sign basically what these deals were, but then you would, you know, inflation adjusted for the salary cap. So with Adams, he's a super unique and, and he's a little bit different to where he obviously wants to reset the market. There's always rumors that he wants $30 million per year, but the DeAndre Hopkins contract is unique in that he had three years remaining on his deal. He got traded, and yes, he signed a two-year extension for worth $27.25 million per year, but that's not really a fair way to look at it because he's on a five-year contract, and they kept a lot of similar numbers from his Texans deal. So the reason Adams is there, his guarantee tops Hopkins, So and, and any receiver tops you know, Amari Cooper's five-year $100 million deal. So he becomes highest paid in that metric. Um, the reason why it's 23.25 is actually just because it's slightly above their left tackle and David Bakhtiari. So it makes him the highest paid non-quarterback on the team. Um, and it does surpass, you know, the Julio Jones deal for $22 million per year, which I think is a better, still a little bit confusing, you know, kind of like DeAndre Hopkins, but a better benchmark for him to surpass. Um, for the other guys, it, it, like I said, it's all that analysis. The accuracy was great for a lot of players last year. The salary cap drop, I, I will blame that a little bit for some, some larger misses. But also, I think we do. We just, we kind of, we missed a little bit on, on some positions. You know, I think the NFL told us that safety in their mind is not as valuable as, as PFF believes it to be. Um, but yeah, in general, they, they, there were some very accurate numbers. They're all going to fall, you know, within a, a decent range. Um, but of course, we can't know stuff like injuries or off-field issues or stuff like that. But they are a solid benchmark if, if fans want to get a, a general idea of where a deal could fall. How much is that uh, DeAndre Hopkins contract screwing up the whole wide receiver landscape right now? Because that's one of those rare ones that is like a legitimate outlier relative to everything else. And when you get guys like Devontae Adams agitating for a new contract or, or just due a new contract, it's like, well, obviously, I want to be the best paid wide receiver in the NFL, right? He's 
got a great case to be the best receiver in the NFL. He's in the right kind of age range. It makes sense. But Green Bay, rightly or naturally, doesn't want to match what is an outlier contract as opposed to just, you know, just being the top of the market. And this is why, you know, average per year is so important because folks can push back on that. And of course, there, there are flaws with, with APY because, you know, your cash flows and all that matter more. But NFL players and agents compare their clients to the rest of the NFL by the average per year of the deal. So, you know, like I said, Adams wants to surpass that number from Hopkins, but he has, you know, his deal would start in 2022. The first year would be in 2022, whereas Hopkins' extension was the fourth and fifth year of a deal, and there was a signing bonus and stuff like that. But so that's what complicates it. Yeah, it's a total outlier. The next the next deal is Julio Jones at 22, so it's like a 25, 20% markup, you know, on the next highest paid receiver in terms of average per year, which is causing headaches for, I think, probably every team. So I, I've talked to some people who, you know, salary cap people and, you know, people around the NFL who have said agents want different things, right? And, and I think you laid it out, right? Agents want that APY. Is there something strategically teams can do to kind of appease the agents, get the APY, but also get a team-friendly deal at the same time? Because it, it sounds like a good cap person knows the agent's knows their desires, knows how they want, you know, the contracts to be structured, but they can also use that against them to kind of make, you know, something team friendly as well. Are there certain tricks to that? For sure. Yeah. So, you know, just one example, um, you know, Trent Williams, obviously a unique situation, still a phenomenal deal, but his 23 million per year deal, you know, is, is not as strong as David Bakhtiari's, which he just barely surpassed. Um, if you look at the actual year by year cash flows and how the money comes in. So that's one way a team can kind of, you know, manipulate a little bit towards, hey, we'll give you the, what you're looking for. But we also kind of protect ourselves, maybe lower guarantees, stuff like that. I think a very smart team that's doing the opposite is the Baltimore Ravens, where they're not giving in on the average per year, but they're telling agents and, and of course, the players themselves, which if folks don't know, by the way, teams try to circumvent agents and talk directly to the players in their building. And they're yeah. telling them, look, we'll give you stronger guarantees. You will have more assurances. You'll have better early year cash flows. And you're not going to get the APY. You're not going to stack up as X highest paid player. But one example, Ronnie Stanley, didn't eclipse that 20 million per year mark, which had become a big benchmark with, you know, at left tackle with guys like Laramie Tunsil, so on and so forth. His guarantees are stronger than every other tackle on the market. So that's how teams can kind of manipulate it in both directions. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that's uh, it is interesting that agents want different things and you can kind of use that. Uh, Sam, do you want to go position by position through this group? Yeah, I think we should definitely run through position uh, wise and just kind of get an idea of where the draft cat or where the guy, I'm going to keep saying draft class, where the free agent group lies this year relative to every other year. Obviously, you're going to want to start a quarterback. Um, and QB is, is interesting because we kind of lump free agents and trades into the same kind of bucket a little bit in this first offseason team building area. And all the strongest quarterbacks are going to be in that potential trade market, right? It's Aaron Rodgers, it's Russell Wilson, it's it's Deshaun Watson's agent trying to force his name into the the conversation every two minutes from the the sounds of all the reports out there. But like the top free agent quarterback is Jameis <laughs> again. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's not a great group. And I think it's also just we're seeing a, a change in philosophy with teams. You know, I think the trades last year with Carson Wentz and Jared Goff and I guess Matthew Stafford as well, like that was a sea change. That was a notable event in the NFL where I think more teams are now going to realize why would we go into free agency and give out, you know, the Case Keenum deal a couple of years ago, two years, $36 million from Denver. They moved on after 10 games. Like those deals are going away. It's now going to be these big splash trades or the one-year flyers like we saw for, you know, Andy Dalton, Ryan Fitzpatrick, so on and so forth. So guys like Jameis Winston, guys like Teddy Bridgewater, I don't see them getting strong multi-year offers. I think teams will say, you know, at that point, we'll just trade for, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo or whoever. Whether that's a good idea, you know, I don't know. But um, it's, it's free agency. When you reach free agency as a quarterback, it's it's probably a red flag that you're not a very good quarterback. It, it kind of feels, though, that there might be an edge to be had in that. Whereas, you know, instead of trading, and Wentz is a great example, or, you know, Kirk Cousins, if the Vikings can find somebody desperate enough to trade for him, or... If you're of that tier that isn't the elite quarterback, that isn't the Aaron Rodgers, the uh, Russell Wilson's probably still in that group, but if you're the next tier down and you're trading for those quarterbacks, you're also trading for a monster contract in almost all circumstances, right? Because there's a reason those teams are getting rid of them, which is they're not worth the money that they've committed to them at some point in the past. And if you're getting rid of a Carson Wentz or a Kirk Cousins or whatever, it's because you decided that the, the balance of play versus money just isn't stacking up and you're hoping another team just thinks it it is or are desperate enough for the QB to make it happen but particularly Jameis Winston is the interesting name there and I guess Marcus Mariota would be the other one but if you're a team that like is potentially tempted by a Kirk Cousins or uh, a Carson Wentz or whatever surely for the money difference like, Jameis couldn't find a job the last time he was a free agent. He had to take a one-year deal for, like, buttons just to get on a roster somewhere and, like, maybe sit behind Drew Brees in the hope that once he left, he would win the job over Taysom Hill. And it worked out, but the point is, like, nobody was willing to give him any money whatsoever, despite the fact that the difference between Jameis and a Carson Wentz is probably negligible, and the monetary difference between the two is massive. So... If you're a team that's that stuck at quarterback, surely that's a better option than trading for a guy who might not be any better anyway and is coming with a giant sum of money attached to his contract. 110%. And I do think teams have figured that out. I mean, another example, too, is last offseason, like if you're Washington and you're desperate for a quarterback, they probably sniffed around the Sam Darnold market. And it's like you're giving up a second round pick and more. Right. And you're committing, you know, this $18 million guarantee for 2022 that Carolina now will do whatever it takes to get out of. And there's no indication that Darnold's any better than bringing on Ryan Fitzpatrick for a one-year flyer. Yes, of course, he got hurt like right out of the gate. But I do. I think teams realize there's value there. I think the Patriots with Cam Newton kind of realized, like, we, we have a bridge between Tom Brady and our next guy. We're not going to panic and go make some splash move for an average player. We'd rather just take a one-year $5 million deal on a Cam Newton and then figure it out. I do. I think there, there is value there, and I think teams realize it. I think Washington's move last year, like, it, it didn't work out. Obviously, Fitzpatrick got hurt almost immediately. But I think the process was actually pretty good. Like, they looked at this, thought, this team, thought they were a playoff contending team, and may have been with Fitzpatrick there knew they didn't really have any real shot at a, a proper 
future answer at quarterback. They, they didn't think they'd be in position to draft one. They didn't like the options available in the sort of Sam Darnold world of things and either didn't think it was an option or just didn't get there in terms of Aaron Rodgers or um, Russell Wilson or whatever. So they looked at this and said, well, what do you do if you're in that situation? Well, let's grab Ryan Fitzpatrick for a pretty modest contract. And if Fitzpatrick plays the way he has been the last few years, that's league average quarterback play, which if we're a good team is enough to be contending. And I think that was a pretty good kind of process or at least thought process to go, you know, to explore and to go down that pathway. And then they just got kind of screwed by the results. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the key you mentioned, too, is when you do make a trade, like, for example, if someone trades for Garoppolo, you have to extend that guy. You have to give him a right. massive, not top of market, but, you know, he might ask for like $35 million per year on an extension. And, you know, he's not he's not that good. He's not good enough to win with that on a team salary cap and then trying to fit a roster around him. It's just not going to happen. So, yeah, I think so the idea of like a Jameis – a Mariota, a Teddy Bridgewater as, as one year flyers and bridge quarterbacks. I mean, at some point you have to find your guy, but it is, it is probably a better move than the trade. Right. And I think, so on one hand, teams might learn from Wentz and they might learn from Darnold. On the other hand, Sam and I have been discussing this a lot. Are teams going to misinterpret what the Rams did, the trade for Stafford and try to replicate that? Cause honestly, is there, that big of a difference between the Rams trading for Stafford and the Colts trading for Wentz. It's not from a process standpoint, it's not that big of a difference, even though Stafford's better and proved to be a Super Bowl winner and Wentz is on his way out with the Colts. But I don't know if teams are going to learn their lesson. I think they might look at the Rams and be like, man, we got to trade. We got to trade for our next quarterback, uh, you know, instead of. uh... So here's the thing. This free agent class is being stacked up, though, with this draft class where nobody can figure out who QB one is. So people are sitting there saying I could do the one year of Jameis or one year of Bridgewater, one year of Mariota or invest in Sam Howell, Kenny Pickett, Malik Willis, whoever it might be. And I think that the free agent deal might be the the better way right now. A hundred percent. I mean, you save that first round pick, you can use it elsewhere and you bring in a bridge and, and a guy who probably, you know, in theory is better than any of these rookie picks potentially. Um, yeah, I completely agree. There's no reason to force it. I'm sure a couple teams still will, um, but I would, I would sign our guy Jameis to a one year deal, wait till next year's class, which could have some great players. And, and here's the thing too, is if it goes poorly and you have a Ryan Fitzpatrick situation, let's say Jameis gets hurt again, then you're picking very high. So it kind of like buys you into getting that, you know, that high draft pick, but the, the Stafford thing's interesting. I do think teams will try to replicate that, but and I get that like maybe a couple years ago people viewed Wentz and Stafford in a similar vein. Um, but the seasons those guys were coming off of, I guess Stafford got hurt. But like Wentz was awful in twenty twenty, right? And, and right, Stafford, right. for a small sample, was still a good player. Has a much larger sample of good play. That's why I, th- I do. I think a team, if a car came available, you know, I think teams would be willing to make a massive move like they did for Stafford. And is that a good move? You know, maybe not. Carr Carr is an interesting one, though, because he, I think, does have that capacity of a Matthew Stafford to go on a run, right? That's kind of – that, to me, is the takeaway from the Stafford deal. It's not even that – you know, the the people that were Stafford supporters are doing all the victory laps and saying, see, all he needed was a team that wasn't the Lions. And, like, they were really close to being a wild-card team, right? They needed the Cardinals to collapse to get the division win and – potentially set them up to go on that run. And they needed Stafford 
to be way better in the playoffs than he was during the regular season. And even then, they squeaked by multiple teams along the way. So I'm not sure how much of a ringing endorsement it is on, you know, Stafford plus the Rams was just inevitable success. Um, But what it does do, I think, is show you that a guy as talented as Matthew Stafford and with his ability of in terms of high-end play, if you get a guy that, that whose baseline is high enough to get you in the conversation, then can go on that run, right, and, and string together four games where he does play much better than he was in the regular season, that's what can take you to a Super Bowl. And I think we've already seen that Derek Carr can do that, right? He, he might not play at that level all throughout the season and into the playoffs, but Carr is absolutely capable of stringing together four or five games that are of a much higher standard where he's, you know, one of the best graded quarterbacks in the NFL. He led the league in big time throws for a, like a really long time this season until the entire offense kind of fell apart around him. But I think you're looking at him and saying, yeah, if he was available, you can talk yourself into him being that type of player. So even if you don't think he's going to be a top five QB all the time, you don't necessarily need that. If you have a guy that's like top 15, but then can be top five for five games, that might be what you're shooting for. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the last thing, and teams struggle with this, though, is they'd have to be realistic with where their roster's at, right? I mean, the Rams, you know, yeah. they brought Matthew Stafford into a perfect situation with a great head coach and all these things. You know, if, I mean, I think Washington has a decent roster, but like if Carolina thinks that Derek Carr is going to give them a Matthew Stafford opportunity, like it's not. <laughs> Yeah. Do, do, Carolina are interesting to me, though. I, we, I was on Matthew Collar's podcast yesterday, and we were talking about, like, potential Kirk Cousins trade destinations. And you're like, I, how many teams are, are desperate enough for quarterback that Kirk Cousins is the answer, given, given exactly how his tenure has gone in Minnesota, right? Where the, the sort of the prevailing wisdom now is that, yeah, like, he's been fantastic. He's individually been better than you could possibly have expected Kirk Cousins to be at the point you signed him. On the other hand, he's kind of the reason you're bad now, right? Because his contract has just wrecked any opportunity you had to put a really good team around him, which evidently he needs. So I don't see a team like Washington or uh, Denver or any of these teams that clearly need an upgraded quarterback, but have ideals of going somewhere with it. I don't see how you could look at Kirk Cousins and think that's the answer. To me, almost the only team in the NFL that might possibly be desperate enough to swing something at Kirk Cousins would be Carolina. And even then, A, you would need Minnesota to eat a chunk of that money although because you've already got a giant sum attached to Sam Darnold. And B, like it's literally only because things have gone so badly in Carolina that people are coaching for their jobs right now. Exactly. And the thing, too, I think, which also goes back to Stafford, is like, Kirk Cousins is very scheme-specific, right? I mean, Ben McAdoo has had success with Eli, uh, Eli Manning and with Gardner Minshew, and, but he runs a 11-personnel, heavy shotgun offense, which is not what Kirk Cousins is good at. And I think he could you know, accommodate and, and, and switch things around, but that's, I think, a big final cog, too. And I think it's part of the, kind of the, the Russell Wilson discourse as well, where, yes, he's obviously a great quarterback, but I think there are some question marks of, like, can you drop him into any scheme? Could you put him in Tampa? Would he be good in a Bruce Arians offense? Like, maybe not. All right, let's move on to receivers. We've talked a little bit about Devontae Adams. He's number one. But in our free agent list, we have four receivers in the top 10, five in the top 20. Unfortunately, number 19 is Odell Beckham, who just tore his ACL in the Super Bowl. So that potentially affects his market. But Chris Godwin at three, Mike Williams, 
Allen Robinson. Again, do these guys, does a Chris Godwin hit the market? Does Mike Williams hit the market? Or are, are these guys going to be some of the most coveted players? Is the, NFL, is the NFL getting around to, man, like, go get your playmakers, like we've been saying for a while? Or do these, uh, what, how, do, how does this wide receiver class shake out? It looks pretty strong at the top. It does, but I actually think their their prevailing theory now is go get those playmakers in the draft. You know, I, I think mm. they look at, I mean, look at last offseason, Kenny Galladay, Corey Davis, you know, a lot of those top True. deals were, were, were bad, right? And the funny thing about Mike Williams is I, I would, his market probably skyrocketed as all these guys got hurt and he stayed healthy and had a career year, but the odds he gets a franchise tag may also have skyrocketed at the same time. Um I think really Allen Robinson may benefit from all the things that happened around him. I still don't think he's going to get this, this monster deal he probably was hoping for, um, but he may become kind of the bell of the ball now. You know, he's healthy um, and he's not, you know, he's, you know, there's no chance he gets franchise tagged. Um, it's tough though. I mean, like you said, Odell Beckham Jr. Probably not healthy for the entire 2022 season at this point. Um, you know, Godwin and Gallup will come back at some point, but you know, when, when will that happen? It's a good class, but I do, I think teams, for better or for worse, they look at the prior offseason and how those deals went, and they probably overreact to that. And at receiver, the overreaction will be not giving deals to you know a, a lot of these guys. Is Godwin getting or is uh, is Robinson getting totally hosed by like the one year in his entire life that he wasn't able to be quarterback proof? That guy has gone from literally since like at least college, the start of his college career, and probably high school if you look at his his numbers. I'm not sure he's ever had a quarterback to work with. Um, and every year he's been absolutely quarterback proof. It didn't matter who was throwing him the ball. He had fantastic seasons. He put up great PFF grades. And then this year, um, Chicago goes through the, the Dalton mess, ends up pitching Justin Fields in there. And for some reason, it just doesn't work with Allen Robinson this year. And he's coming off, you know, he's hitting free agency, coming off a relative down year for him. And it's like, oh, well, Robinson isn't that good anymore. Like, he, he's literally, he's been a top five, top ten receiver with nobody throwing in the ball for the last God knows how many years. And then the one year, it doesn't quite happen for him. And it seems like everybody is sort of taking him away from that elite conversation. Yeah, no, it's fair. And it's probably unfair to do to him. And, and you know, like I said, look, he, he stayed healthy. And so there's also... Yeah, if you want to just kind of flush 2021 and ignore it and say, look, you know, all we care about is that he's still ready to go. You know, he's still not super old or anything like that. I think you totally could sell yourself on that. But, yeah, I mean, folks really do react strongly to contract years. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it's something we've studied and it's, it, it informs our projections. It's something that we looked at a bunch, you know, in the beginning of our process of doing our, you know, our unadjusted projections in, in the first place. Um, it, the, the weight on the, the contract year and two years prior um, is very strong. But, hey, that's probably a, a case where if a team does sign, they might get a really strong surplus value deal that looks phenomenal, you know, one year later. I think the tough part with a lot of these is, and the interesting thing you said there is teams are feeling like they can get receivers in the draft. So like where are the ebbs and flows? Sam and I, we've talked, you know, we've talked a lot about, Hey, the NFL is feeding a ton of good receivers into the NFL. So if the trend is you can just draft them, get them on the cheap for four or five years instead of paying the big money. I think that's one angle. The other angle is a guy like Corey Davis, who, uh, you know, we all, the, the jokes that I used to love him and all that stuff and call him a Hall of Famer, Sam. But he's still a wide receiver, too. And it's like, man, when he's making $12, 13000000 million a year, 
I, I, that's tough to stomach because a year later, it's like, I wonder if I could get Mike Williams for that. I mean, Williams market probably be a little bit higher and Robinson's market be, be a little bit higher, but it's tough to stomach a, say a Corey Davis as a number two wide receiver for 12 or 13, when it could be eight and give you flexibility elsewhere. So that is interesting. You don't anticipate maybe as high of a market for some of these high end receivers because of recency bias, both in the draft and from receiver contracts. Yep. Wide receiver uh, also th- looks like this good, spot Sam. though, where um, th- that's where you want to chase those value guys because you can get really great contributions in an offense for a number two, a number three, a sort of designated role player, like a specialist deep threat, a, a slot receiver, whatever it is. And those guys are appearing like in the hundreds in our, uh, in our uh, free agent rankings, they're, they're not going to cost much money. And you can try and find the number one guy if you have a, a complete hole at wide receiver in the draft. And it's going to cost you a fraction of what it would for these top guys. And even the top guys, there's questions everywhere. You know, we assume Devontae Adams is going to get tagged. We, Chris Godwin might hit the market, but he's a guy that hasn't necessarily been a true number one himself. He spent a lot of time in the slot, all those kinds of things. Mike Williams is a limited style of wide receiver. Robinson, we just talked about, everybody's kind of cooling on. OBJ just tore his ACL. Michael Gallup's been hurt. Like, if you're trying to find that number one, A, you're going to overpay for it, and B, it might not be there anyway. Um, Whereas you could probably find that guy in the draft and kind of attack the wide receiver core in terms of depth and, and value using free agency a lot better. Will Fuller, free agent again, Sam. We could send him to every team, number 89 on our list. No, I mean, if you look at guys in the 90s, like Jamison Crowder, Marquez Valdez, Scantling, uh, he could be that designated deep threat that you talked about. Emmanuel Sanders is still good despite being 35. Uh, not necessarily long-term plays, but if you're trying to get wide receiver three, wide receiver four, depth, uh, and then draft somebody as well. I think there is there is a ton of value to be had in this wide receiver class. I think it's deep. Deshaun Jackson, for whatever it's worth. I mean, there are players who could still contribute uh, probably a lot cheaper than some of those high-end guys. All right, Hoops fans, the latest offer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. It's too good to pass up. I'm talking between the legs, 360 windmill good. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. It's that simple. The sportsbook isn't yet available in your state. You can still take your shot at a big payday. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings daily fantasy basketball contests. And DraftKings has given all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet just $1 on any NBA team. Get $150 and free bets if they win. It's promo code PFF at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 or older. Minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Brad, we already talked about the tight end class a touch. Uh, there are some good names there, but those are guys you're saying. What What is the difference in that tight end franchise tag that makes it so appealing for maybe a Mike Gusecki or a Dalton Schultz to get franchised? Yeah, I mean, look at Mike Kosicki, a perfect example, a guy that will probably try to make the argument like Jimmy Graham did back in the day that he's actually a wide receiver. There's that clip uh, going around on National Tight Ends Day where a teammate was like, hey, happy National Tight Ends Day. He goes, no, I'm a big slot receiver. 
Yeah. The wide receiver tag is projected around 19 million. The tight end tag is around 10 and a half. So you're literally saving like almost half of the value um, on a guy that is, yeah, is basically a big slot receiver. So it's super attractive to teams because you know, the, the market is still so low at tight end and, and, and guys like him are 100 target players on your roster um, and, and have no reason not to be, you know, kind of considered as a, t- as a receiver in some respects. Um, and teams are going to love that. So I think a lot of those guys could be facing a tag. This list includes Gesicki, as you said, the big slot. Uh, Dalton Schultz, who really has emerged as a, as a good all-around tight end. It, we, we talked a lot about the Cowboys receivers and their trio, really the four guys with Cedric Wilson, but Schultz has emerged as a good middle-of-the-field threat who can block a little bit. Gronk is technically a free agent, uh, initially said that he might retire, and then he said if he was going to play with somebody, though, it could be in Cincinnati. That would be interesting if he had one last year with, uh, with Joe Burrow here in Cincinnati. David Njoku, the ageless Zach Ertz, Gerald Everett, Evan Ingram. So there are in, in Max Williams, who we all loved, even though he's coming off an injury. So I think there are some players to be had here. And I think tight ends around the league, it's really a, a top heavy weak position. I think you could find a, a, a decent starter uh, toward the bottom middle of our free agent list. But yeah, some of those names at the top, um, we'll see if they even, if they even make it because of that franchise tag you're talking about. Yeah, that's, that's just the unfortunate reality of the position. It, it should be fun if, if he does try to make the same argument that uh, Jimmy Graham did. But uh, I, Graham obviously lost that that argument. So, <laughs> how should how should that be handled? Because I don't know. I think I think tight end is a position that lines up in receiver spots, like receivers in alignment, and I think it's okay to call him a tight end. And I'm not trying to take money out of his pocket or anything like that. But you know that's. I think there's a difference between position and alignment. How does the NFL now where they're they're wrong is when edge rushers get classified as linebackers on like that is absurd and crazy. That's like that's a language problem, right? It is a language problem that a pass rusher, a three four outside linebacker, is called a three four outside linebacker. The fact that they just name that position as they do and treating it different than a four three. Defensive end. How does the NFL navigate that stuff going forward? Yeah, so that I was going to bring up what you just mentioned, which is super silly and has caused issues and causes grievances literally every single offseason where a guy gets tagged with the linebacker tag and he, you know, he obviously wants the defensive end tag. Um, it's interesting. You know, I, I think there may be a, a push from the from the NFLPA at some point, but you know, the, the prevailing kind of thing you come back to whenever we have conversations like this is that. The NFLPA is not really looking out for guys that are franchise tag eligible because those are high paid guys that are going to make a ton of money and are going to, you know, even if they get the tag one year, that one year tag is more than the average NFL player makes in their career, regardless of position. Um, So that's where, you know, it's not a priority for them. So frankly, I I don't see a solution there. Maybe the, the whole linebacker thing eventually gets gets kind of addressed, but, you know, it's kind of unavoidable. I, I think it would take a sticky you know, or a guy like a Kyle Pitts. Like, I think Pitts is going to be fascinating because yeah. he might even tell the team, like, I'm going to go – because because the, the arbitrator in the Jimmy Graham case laid out why he was a tight end. He said it's because of the amount of snaps he lined up within a certain distance from the tackle and that he was still close enough to the tackle on enough snaps that when he was in the slot, he was still a tight end. I think Pitts is going to say, you need to give me X percent of snaps lined up out wide as an X receiver, and therefore I can then go back and say, hey, you NFL, your arbitrator, 
laid out what made Jimmy Graham a tight end. And so because of that, I did the opposite, and, and I'm a receiver. And I think there is a good chance he might kind of break the, the whole mold there. I, I don't think they even – like, I don't think he even needs to push it. That That's where they're playing him right now. He's playing, spending at least a third of his snaps so far, lined up as a true outside wide receiver. Like, most of the rest are from the slot, and they're using him – at, they're using him as their number one wide receiver, who also plays some snaps in tight end, like some snaps in line as a tight end. The the problem, I think, largely is that we we've moved to this era of hybrid players, and there are guys that play multiple positions, but the designation is just you're this or you're this. Like there's no capacity right now for these hybrid designations that uh, of players that straddle multiple positions. And as you said, the real problem is that like nobody has any real interest in fixing it because it's a much lower priority well, problem. Like these guys are the, already well, making a ton of money. The other part of it too, right? Do we need a franchise tag? Do we need to have something that says, Here's all the positions that are predefined. I mean, do we just get rid of the franchise tag? I don't know. Uh, when I get asked that question, if you ask me what owners of every single line in the CBA, what they would least be willing to get rid of, it's probably the franchise tag. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure it is. Because the, the thing there, the explanation is, the franchise tag doesn't just suppress the market for the guys that get it. It suppresses the market for every single player in the NFL. The way sure. they negotiate deals is, for top-end guys, of course, is you basically say, here's what, it would, here's what we would pay you if we tagged you the next two years and then you kind of work off of that to then form the basis of your contract extension. So, yeah, unfortunately uh, for NFL players, again, we're not trying to take any money out of anyone's pockets. But if the NFLPA tried to say, all right, what will it take to get rid of the franchise tag? The NFL would say, I don't know, we'll drop your share of revenue from 50, from 49% to 20%. Like, it's yeah. they, they care about it that much. All right, let's go to offensive line. I think there, there are some good players here. It starts at the top, a tackle, Teron Armstead from the Saints. Um, he's number two on our overall free agent board, but he's battled injuries a little bit the last couple of years when he's healthy. He's awesome. Orlando Brown is at number nine. The interesting thing there, of course, the chiefs traded a first round pick essentially with a lot of other stuff. Uh, first round pick for Orlando Brown for technically for one year of his services. We'll see if they bring him back. Ryan Jensen at center, Brandon Scherf at guard. Uh, there's a bunch of players in the top 50 or so um, on the offensive line. How do, how do you see this group shaking out, Brad? Yeah, I think it's a good year for offensive line. I think the Toronto Armstead situation is very fascinating because if Sean Payton was there, I'd tell you, look, again, there's no chance they don't just find a way to extend him, um, get him a deal. But now that Payton's gone, I think there is maybe a possibility he hits the market. And he's probably one of the better left tackles to hit the free agent market in a while if he does. Um, I think he would join that, you know, 20 million per year group, um, you know, at least. Uh, and yes, he has had a couple injuries the last couple of years, but still, he's young, at least for tackle. You know, early 30s is now nowadays is young at tackle. Um, Orlando Brown, again, he'll, he'll get franchise taggers. There's no chance of him leaving. But I do think there's a lot of good depth, too. We have a lot of interior guys. Um, that I think will hit the market. You know, a couple guys from the Rams that they can't afford to pay, a couple guys from the Buccaneers maybe they can't afford to pay. Um, I think it's going to be a, a good year for interior offensive line. Um, if teams want to find a starter or depth, I think it's a good year. Hear that, Bengals fans? You could fix the offensive line in an offseason. You could do it with, uh, with these players. Uh, you mentioned the Saints. Uh, are they in as dire of a cap situation as it seems, or do they just they always have this thing planned out. I know we talked about them last year and the Saints are always an interesting case. 
Yeah, they're actually in a better spot than last year. So they have the way they structured all these recent extensions um, was just there. Like there's a massive uh, salary in 2022 that they'll just go ahead and restructure and push down the line. Um, if they extended Teron Armstead, they would actually clear a bunch of cap space, for example, with him. Um, so they're, they're, all, they're fine. I'll say they're fine. But end of the day, like they're no longer a talented roster. So sure, their cap is fine, but they're not good anymore. So are, are they are they fine at, you know, overall? I don't know. Do you see the Saints, um, their approach changing without Sean Payton being there? Like they've, yeah, I, people obviously mischaracterize the Saints all the time, right? Because every time you get to this period of the year and it's like they're $100 million over the cap and they're like, oh, they're in salary cap hell. That, like people were writing that Sean Payton was jumping off the roster because they were in salary cap hell. Like it's absurd, right? So they, but this is the approach that they take to the salary cap. Is that how much was Sean Payton? influencing that and now that he's not there do they change the approach they take or is this just the way they deal with it and whatever head coach is there is going to have to operate within this style of uh, salary cap and roster management so it was it was definitely partly sean payton but it was also a lot of it was drew Brees. i mean the patriots with tom brady at the end put themselves in a tough position um you know it, it happens so like, teams are going to go all in as they should frankly at the end of a you know franchise quarterback's career the steelers kind of avoided it because ben was so bad they were able to get a pay cut from him but you know that so so i do think it's going to shift away from that a little bit but end of the day they have an ownership group that is willing to spend more money than everybody else and the salary cap is an accounting tool at the end of the day. So I still think they'll be aggressive. I still think they'll try to win. They'll spend on guys they like. Um, but I don't think it'll get this dire again for a while unless, you know, unless they land another quarterback they think they can win a Super Bowl with. All right, let's go to the defensive side of the ball, edge defender. You've got Vaughn Miller. He moves up to number four on the, on the back of an awesome playoff run. He actually ends up as the number three graded edge defender uh, in the entire NFL based off that stretch run. So Vaughn. Maybe still has it, but he's 33. Chandler Jones, he's 32. He's number five on our overall list. You have Jadavian Clowney, Randy Gregory. Um, and then there's this drop-off of when we were trying to say, Emmanuel Ogba, he's got one pretty good year. And Melvin Ingram, he's a good you know, one-year rental, as we saw for the Steelers a little bit, and then for the Chiefs. And Hassan Reddick, Harold Landry, Justin Houston, there's a combination of you know, rent-a-player, but a couple big names who are getting older here in this edge class. Yeah, I think it is a good year if you want kind of that mercenary, like a Melvin Ingram. I think all of those guys, I'm not going to say ring chasing, but like I think they will be looking to make a move where still taking a strong deal, almost kind of like, you know, J.J. Watt last year, where his deal was still solid. He probably could have pushed for more. I'm sure other teams were offering more, but he basically said, all right, I'm getting enough value. And then I'm you know going to a situation that I think is favorable for me winning games. So, I think it's interesting because I think Randy Gregory, I think Dallas will probably be able to sell him on. Look, we stuck by you forever. I mean, he's hitting he's hitting free agency as the first time as a 30-year-old for a reason. Um, but it's tough. I mean, Demarcus Lawrence is a top five paid edge rusher. Obviously, Michael Parsons now brings that element for them, so they have players there. Um, and, and yeah, those veterans though, like Ingram, you mentioned, um, you know, Clowney. I think he could go back to Cleveland, but also maybe not. Um, I think there's some good value there. I think teams could land a lot of those guys. Justin Houston, who got on the list. Um, land those guys for decent deals. I mean, we saw that was all another position last offseason that struggled. I mean, Matthew Judon, his deal is not strong. I mean, it's a you know 13-ish million per year coming off a franchise tag that was worth about 18 million dollars. Um, I think there I think there could be some smart and, and good moves at edge rusher for veterans this offseason. Talk about 
Harold Landry because he feels like a guy where the disconnect between PFF and the kind of broader NFL world is as large as it is on pretty much any player. He he get he's a really interesting guy as well because he gets most edge rushers where we don't think they're good and everybody else does, it's because they get like a bunch of sacks one year, um, but they don't actually get pressure. You know, they just kind of, I, I don't want to use the word luck, but they, variants came on their side for a while and they got a bunch of sacks relative to the impact they're actually having in terms of pressure. And it's just, it screams regression and overachieving and not as good as they actually are. Bud Dupree being the classic example, right? Landry actually gets a lot of pressure. Like his pressure numbers are strong, um, but they're usually not good pressures, if that makes sense, right? They're cleanup plays. They they're long developing. They're not impact incisive, quick pressures, and he he plays an absolute ton of snaps to get them. So his pass rush grade, it's just never good. Um, and again, like this is a guy we liked in college. We liked coming out in the draft and expected him to be. Uh, an impact pass rusher at this level, and it just hasn't ever quite happened with him. But he feels like the kind of guy that could still get a really big free agent deal based off some of those numbers. Yeah, so you mentioned one thing, which obviously we, with our grading and looking at efficiency, kind of hold against him a bit. But he's played 250 more snaps than the next highest edge rusher since 2019. So, like, his volume is insane, and he does not have to come off the field. And I think there's also, you know, value for that for clubs. And Interestingly enough, the next highest guy on that list is Leonard Floyd, who got a very strong, you know, four-year, $16 million per year deal. Another guy that we think, you know, a lot of things were schemed up for him, or got a lot of cleanup pressure, stuff like that, obviously benefited from playing with, you know, Aaron Donald. Um, he now has, you know, back-to-back sacks, you know, attended the double-digit sack seasons and stuff like that, so he's been pretty good. But I think that's how teams are going to sell themselves on Landry is, you know, he's an Iron Man. There's a high floor there. Um, but, yeah, like Tennessee schemes stuff up, a lot of stunts, a lot of ways to manufacture things that isn't Harold Landry winning one-on-ones. Um, but with the way they play, you know, the man coverage behind it and all the things they do, you know, I think that it's going to be hard for them to let him go. But they did, you know, as you mentioned, Bud Dupree, they did give Bud Dupree a very strong five-year, $82.5 million deal. Jeffrey Simmons on the interior is probably going to get into that maybe even a $20 million per year deal conversation soon. Can I have those three guys? You know, maybe not, but I, I think he will stick in Tennessee. Uh, the other in- interesting thing about Landry, you mentioned all those snaps, over 1,000 snaps, three straight years. Uh, like a Leonard Floyd, he does drop into coverage a lot. So they, there are these guys that bring some versatility, 100, over 100 snaps in coverage each of the last three years. So I know that schematic, when you're putting this edge to, defender list together, I remember last year, Yannick Ngakwe, it was like, he's just a wide nine rusher. That's what he does. You cannot do other stuff with him, and he's bad against the run. And, and with, with these edge defenders, that's a huge part of it. Are they a one-trick person? Are they just a designated pass rusher? And are they just a pass rusher that has to line up outside? Can they move around? You know, like Arden Key's a guy who broke out this year. He's going to be um, in the middle of the list for us. He showed that he bulked up and can win against guards, right? And so all of a sudden he looks like an excellent third rusher the same way he was with the 49ers. I think there's a little bit of depth here in this edge class if you're looking for that low end two or uh, or a number three type of rusher, Was it, which isn't flashy or exciting, but it's there. It's there to be had. And uh, I think teams do want to have three and four good pass rushers. That's, that's the way the NFL works. Uh, sticking with the defensive line, though, on the interior, this class is not great. Akeem Hicks, our top guy at number 23. Calais Campbell's 30. 
um, in the on the board, but he's 35 in uh, age, and Hicks is 32. So you got some old folks. You got Indomic and Sue. Speaking of Iron Men, that dude just keeps playing. I keep saying, give him 500 snaps. Maybe he can still produce, but he's an 800 plus snap guy every year. But his production has started to drop off. So if you're looking for big dudes in the middle, not really the best free agent class. Yeah, I would say if we had to rank them all, it might be the you know the weakest position group of all of them, just because yeah, all those guys are great players, but like you said, they're all 32 plus, um, have shown you know kind of some some regression at this point, um, some injuries popping up for Akeem Hicks, for example. Um, I, I do think he's probably going to have a strong bounce back year. I think things ended kind of poorly in Chicago, but with that class, I think you kind of look to hit that middle tier again. I mean, a guy like a Malik Collins, a guy like a DJ Jones, I think guys that will hit the market. Um, maybe not Collins in Houston. I think they do like him a lot in Houston, but I think San Francisco probably has to let a guy like DJ Jones go. And, and I, he, I saw he had uh, the second most tackles for a loss or no gain behind Aaron Donald this year among all interior defenders. So not a pass rusher by, you know, by, by any stretch of the imagination, really. Actually, they get a huge sack in the Cowboys playoff game. But, you know, nevertheless, I think some solid guys that you probably are giving, you know, mid-tier money, $8, 10000000 million per year, um, that could have a decent impact. I want. I wonder if guys like um, you know guys that are on stacked uh, depth charts and haven't played much because of it get boosted up a little bit because you know because of this class being as weak as it is. Somebody like um, Tim Settle from Washington, like that defensive line, obviously in, in Washington has been insane. Tim Settle has been playing sort of two, three hundred snaps the last few seasons. Is still young, still has ridiculous physical ability. Uh, maybe a team could like project him into a slightly bigger role uh, and think he'll be a, a better player because of it, given an opportunity. Another guy, too, like Quentin Jefferson, I think fits that mold as well. Like a guy that, you know, you probably don't want to play all the time, but on, you know, in obvious passing situations, he's a strong, you know, interior pass rusher as a three tech. You know, I think, though, yeah, that those type of guys, I think, are the guys you're looking for. There's another fun debate with the Tim Settle stuff. He's only 20. He'll be 25 at the start of the season coming out of Virginia Tech. He was a very, you know, he was young and a developmental player. Right. And um, I know a lot of draft analysis is like, give me the young guy. I want the young guy because he'll get better. But a lot of times it takes them four years and all of a sudden you don't get to see that development. Right. So Washington's got this developmental guy. And now that he's really maybe coming into his own, they don't have him anymore. And he's so it's just an interesting debate as far as getting guys that are you know, quote unquote projectable and have upside and all that stuff. Cause sometimes they hit the upside when you, when they're not on your team anymore. Uh, linebacker also kind of an unexciting group uh, guy that we've talked a lot about on this show here, Devondre Campbell, uh, probably 150th on this list last year at this time, if anything. And uh, now one of the better linebackers in the league finished number two with an 86 PFF grade. How do you handle a guy like Devondre Campbell? I mean, we've got four or five years of just, average to below average play and then he just breaks out and gives the Packers the best linebacker play they've had in years so what do you do with that projecting him going forward I think linebacker is going to be one of the more fascinating position markets this year because I actually think it's going to be a very very strong contractually I think a lot of these guys are going to get better deals than we expect maybe folks expect and I think Part of that is because of, you know, Fred Warner and Darius Leonard totally resetting the market there and kind of just shifting that, you know, getting them back on track. They kind of, since CJ Mosley and Bobby Wagner deals, they've fallen off pretty precipitously, but now it's trending back up. And I think 
it's it's going to be scary. I mean, I think spending a lot on off-ball linebacker is is a risky proposition. There's just so much variance there. Um, I mean, like Devonta Campbell, a perfect example. You know, one of our highest-graded players at the position, um, kind of out of nowhere. You know, not really. He didn't get signed until I think June of last year. So. I think a lot of those guys are going to get deals. I think it's a great class, though. I mean, there's so much depth. Maybe not a, you know, a top-end guy, but, you know, both guys from Denver and Josie Jewell and Alexander Johnson. Um, you know, even like a Leighton Van Der Esch, I think teams are still going to be kind of interested in, give a decent deal. Um, obviously, Foyer Aluakun in Atlanta had, I think, 192 combined tackles. It's like a top-10 mark in the history of the NFL. Um, I think they're going to get some money, and I think a lot of those deals are probably not going to age too well. Van Der Esch is only 25, former first-rounder. Brad, you've done some work, too, on – teams still care about draft status, right? And, and, and I think that's because, you know, again, the more you talk to people, when they, when they you know, they're, they're looking at players in their system, they keep the draft grades like, like right there, right? So if a team logs into their scouting system, they're like, hey, I wonder, let's look at Leighton Van Der Esch, right? They've got all of his reports through the years. They have his draft grade right there, and they probably had a good grade on him because he was a first rounder. Then they have his pro grade, and maybe it's not as good. But I think it triggers something that says, oh, yeah, he was good four years ago. We loved him. And so is there is there value in in showing discipline, you know, along that route and in, in, in finding players that were fourth and fifth rounders who might be just as productive for four or five years later rather than overrating draft status, you know, years years after the fact? 110% because their contracts are going to have a, a slight positive adjustment. I mean, it, it bears out at every single position uh, going back, you know, almost a decade at this point in our, in our database of looking at it, draft status drives value. It pushes the value up teams convince themselves, you know, if we get our hands on this guy, you know, that team was using him incorrectly, but if we get our hands on this guy, you know, we can fix him. We can get him, you know, playing back at the level he was. And they kind of sell themselves kind of interesting reverse. They sell themselves. I'm like, we actually might be attacking surplus value because we can get him for, you know, a decent deal, but he really might actually be worth a great deal. When in reality, yeah, I think it's the opposite. I think a guy, you know, like a Devondre Campbell, maybe gets a stronger deal than, than we expected, but you can find those guys. And I mean, look, even like, you know, Denzel Perryman also made the Pro Bowl, signed a two-year, $6 million deal, got traded from the Carolina to the Raiders. They didn't even keep him and makes the Pro Bowl off-ball linebacker. So there, I think the deals are going to be good, and I don't think it's going to go too well. I think it's probably one of those things that actually – it's not like it's crazy. There's probably logic to it. and There's probably truth to it in a lot of cases, but it's one of those things where if everybody is telling themselves that thing, it ceases to become like the sensible value logic that you think it is, right? Like all of a sudden everyone is now overvaluing this little piece of information. That's probably got some truth to it, that there are a lot of players, you know, we talk about it all the time. Like one of the things that characterizes some of these busts is that guys end up in crappy situations and they're obviously being used incorrectly relative to how they should be or how their skill set is. And there are going to be guys where once you free them from that first team that's butchering their deployment or whatever, they immediately become better players and they start looking like the draft prospect that you thought they were in the first place. But there's also a bunch of players where you just got it wrong, right? And it's probably a significantly higher number than the guys that are getting uh, misused and, and butchered. So when you're kind of when you're looking for that every time, and when everybody is looking for that every time, you're just driving up the price of those guys incorrectly relative to like the the easier win, like the lower hanging fruit is just finding the guys that are better NFL players right now. 
I think you truly have to have a guy that you you like like a Hassan Riddick is a perfect example. Like right. you're literally changing him from a you know off ball you know Will Mike linebacker to saying no, we're putting him on the defensive line. He is a pass rusher. Obviously, he's unique because he's like 220 pounds or whatever it is. But still, you have to say like it can't just be oh we'll just like he'll fit better in our cult- our culture. No, like we're truly going to deploy him in a different yeah. manner than he was before. That's what that's where you can make that case. Right. You would you would need to have a very specific. Here is the exact uh, schematic problem with where they're using him right now, and here is how we would do it differently. Then I think it makes some sense. If you're just being like, "Nah, they're using him wrong," but with like zero, like nothing backing that up, then that's not like that's not reasons. That's just you know pulling crap out of the air and claiming it to be true. This is where it's tough, though. It's the human element. We do this too, right? I mean, four years ago wasn't that long ago. We have our draft takes in our head. And we're still biased by that. Like, here's what I thought this guy was. He's a little different than what I thought, but I could see what I thought at the time, good or bad. So it's the human element that is that is difficult for decision makers sometimes, I think, to, to get away from that. Uh, let's go to corner. Uh, another position, we value it very highly. So there's a lot of players in our top 100. J.C. Jackson's the top player on the board. Stephon Gilmore, an interesting one at th- uh, 31 years old. Carlton Davis, Casey Hayward. And then you have guys like Darius Williams, Steven Nelson, Traverius Ward, DJ Reed, guys who have uh, of different body types and sizes and schemes who have had some production as starters. And I think there's a lot of number two type corners, two and three type corners to be had here in this free agent class. Yeah, I think it's a great year for number two corners, like you said, Um, both veterans and some younger guys. And I do think it's interesting, like, very specific zone heavy scheme or man heavy scheme guys. And, and I think teams, you know, therefore will target certain guys based on that. But yeah, I think, you know, a lot of these guys coming off the one year flyers too, like a Steven Nelson, they gets, you know, late cap casualty of the Steelers plays pretty well in Philadelphia. Um, you know, like, the, and then also the young guys like a Charvarius Ward in Kansas city, stuff like that. Um, I think it's a good year to, to dip into that number two corner market. I think there's going to be some value there. That, that Nelson story, though, it's so tough because, like, we talk about positional value all the time. And I think that implies, like, invest, right? Invest a lot because of positional value. But how do you balance that with maybe a Steven Nelson is available late and for nothing or a Casey Hayward, right? The value that the Raiders got. He was number four in PFF war, Casey Hayward. He was 12th in grade, right? And so he was higher in war because he played 1,100-plus snaps. So he was out there. Uh, played well. So the Raiders just sat there, picked up Casey Hayward almost as an afterthought and got the fourth most value of any corner. So how do you balance that from a team building standpoint? Because I think my, my inclination is like, Oh, I need good corners, spend, spend, spend. But there's also Casey Hayward's and Steven Nelson's and all these dudes who just still help late for cheap. Yeah, so that's actually one of the first conversations I really had about about our war when I got here is that we do we did already look at you know the, the correlation between a, a you know the year and the following year and looking at variance and stuff like that. When you then bake that into the equation, it then actually gives you a much better representation of why the position markets are where they are, right? So like we can say, you know, edge defenders and interior defensive linemen maybe have a, a slightly lower, you know, threshold of how high their war could be on defense, but if a guy has X war in year one, 
he's way more likely to have a, a number similar to that for years going on and on. So, and then, and then the second point you said, yes, too, like the market is flooded. There are more options available. You know, cornerback and safety, obviously probably the two biggest for us, where we put a lot of value in their play. And I think it's justified. I think it's totally warranted. The reason the money doesn't follow is because you can then find, you can find 80% of their production on a one-year flyer for $3 million that you signed in July you're not finding, you know, 80% of an edge rusher, of an elite edge rusher's production on a one-year $3 million flyer in July. That's not happening. How much is uh, how much is age starting to change the way teams view free agents, right? Because obviously Tom Brady is the best example of a guy getting like, old as hell and still playing at a ridiculously high level. Andrew Whitworth just plays a Super Bowl and, and plays well in the Super Bowl at 40 years old at left tackle. Like... The number is getting higher across the board, but obviously it's getting higher in in certain positions way more, right? Like quarterback, offensive line, those guys are suddenly playing deep into their 30s and potentially even beyond. Cornerback, running back, r- positions that are typically the number was always lower, um, but it's still presumably getting higher. So Casey Hayward, I think, is a really interesting case study because a year ago, you've got a guy who was, I think, on PFF's all-decade team, one of the best players of the last 10 years, um, had never graded badly, had always been one of the best corners in the league, but then came off one bad year with the Chargers and was whatever it was, 32 years old, and you're like, oh, he's done, right? That's it. Walk away, we're, we're over. The Casey Hayward, it was a nice run. Now, bye-bye. Your, your time at the top is over. So the Raiders end up picking them, picking them up like you know, late in the day for basically no money just because our secondary is so terrible, even bad Casey Hayward is probably an upgrade. And they end up getting like a legit bounce-back season out of him. And all of a sudden you're like, well, all right, now where are we? Like, is, does he still have a couple of years left? Was that just a weird spasm in a, in a defensive system that he's used to and a – you know, do we catch kind of good end of variance based off the targets that went his way? Like, how are teams starting to adjust where the line is now for with when it comes to age for positions across the board? Yeah, so you mentioned the top, but the prevailing theory, and I've talked to like teams and agents about this, like the further you are from the ball, they expect you to fall off much faster. So you mentioned trench guys and obviously quarterbacks kind of unique, but yeah, I mean, we're going to, I think we're going to keep seeing offensive linemen and, and, you know, we mentioned Calais Campbell and stuff, guys like that. Like if you don't need to use open field speed, I think you can last longer. Um, and then as for like a Casey Hayward and corner, like I think man cover corners are, they're probably much more concerned with those guys falling off a cliff. You know, I mean, like we saw it with Darrell Revis, we, we have you know plenty of examples, whereas you put him in a cover three zone and, and he plays off, you know, often soft, it, it's maybe a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I do think because of the advancements in sports science and, and their ability to, you know, keep them out of prep. I mean, I'll actually give a shout out to the Rams. The Rams uh, kind of get credit for coming up with something that, that the NFL calls Rams Wednesdays, like other clubs, refer to it as Rams Wednesdays because they're one of the first teams to say, we need to give our veterans more rest days. They do not need these practice reps. I mean, you look at a, a Rams practice, Andrew Whitworth is walking around in shorts, like shooting the shit with everybody. Like he, he doesn't practice. And, and like, they I think they saw a lot of these advancements. I think when people say the buzzword of analytics, I think folks don't realize that to teams, sports science is, is in that conversation and is extremely important. And I think it will lead to longer careers and maybe eventually guys making an argument like, you can't just give me the crappy one-year deal because I could have a season like a Casey Hayward. I think it was, it, it, 
and that's just the sports science aspect. There's still individual nutrition, which is always getting better. And so, so even on the individual level, players are training better in the off season as well. Didn't, um, didn't Whitworth tell us that like he didn't, he, the word recovery was new to him when he arrived in Los Angeles. Like the concept was completely unfamiliar. They had a recovery room uh, in Los Angeles, and he's like, "Like, what the hell is that? Like, what what is in a recovery room? Like, it just, I mean, I'm not using this to to hammer on the the Bengals specifically, but it shows you that like one team is out there, you know, with this whole sports science operation and and has a team and a room and an area in the building dedicated to getting these guys back on track. Whereas Whitworth had been playing at the top of his game for ten years, and this was literally an unfamiliar concept to him. Like, it hadn't even occurred that there was this this world of things you could be doing to extend your career and to, to recover and to get back on track and play better. Yeah. Mercedes Lewis said the same thing um, when he went from green to green Bay from the Jacksonville Jaguars. They're like, it was just like night and day in how they treated his body. Yeah. Like you said, of course, Steve, I think that's massively important as well. It comes down to the individual more than the team. The team can't just magically make their guys recover faster and be healthy and eat right and do all those things. So that still of course matters. But I think if you're a guy who does that, you can definitely make, you know, make the case, make the argument that, you know, maybe instead of 30 being the scary number, now 32, 33 is kind of that scary number. Would teams, Look, I mean, would teams even extend I, I, that as far as like, I was hey, going to make a baseball uh, analogy. So you go, Sam. Would, would teams even extend that as far as like paying attention to the team that certain players are coming from? Like if you're, if you're looking at the landscape and saying, all right, this guy is kind of on the borderline of, age or, or durable or uh, age or sort of wear and tear on the other hand he's coming from a team we know does none of this stuff like has zero uh approach to kind of recovery and extending a guy's career and all this kind of stuff and in our environment with our sports science and our recovery system and our nutrition actually this guy's probably got two three more years attached to him I think it's a great thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that the Buffalo Bills, I've heard a lot from them that they apparently built this massive new training facility right around when Brandon Bean, the general manager, got there. And that players like want to go there as a free agent destination now because there is so much belief in their recovery and, you know, and all those things, those buzzwords. I do. I think it's probably something they consider. I mean, just to bring it back to our, our guy, Casey Hayward, the Chargers hired their first analytic staffer ever this, you know, this season. So maybe he was an example of a guy that wasn't getting as much help from his club as, you know, I don't know about the Raiders, but um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they're, they're, they're thinking of it through that lens. And, and that's the key, right? I, I love that you said, hey, part of analytics is sports science, right? All analytics is, is using numbers to find edges. And if that edge is, hey, historically, this position group drops off at 29, 30 years old, knowing what we know now about what we can do, maybe it's 32 or whatever it is, right? It's a little edge that you're going to steal. And I think that's so crucial in football because you have 30, 35 contributors in a game. And again, a big part of the Ram strategy, yeah, it's, it's stars and all that stuff, but it's having average to good players across the roster. And if you could steal an extra average player, and I say average with the utmost respect for NFL players, by the way, an average NFL player is extremely valuable. So that's all, all you're trying to steal here. Totally. Um, I was and just going like to say, a, yeah. we, we, we just had like foam rollers back, you know, like when I was playing, right. It was, but that was like the beginning of the recovery movement where it's like, Hey, you need to, you know, roll out and massage and stuff. And then certain teams do have their own top down philosophies that every player 
we want to keep every player healthy in certain ways. And I know that has just advanced incredibly over the last 10 to 15 years. There's a medical study going around right now. And I, my wife, I asked the doctor, I asked her about it. She's heard good things like icing. Your body is not smart. Like there's, there's this whole prevailing theory that ice is actually not good for recovery, which is insane. Like these guys used to go sit in ice baths after every game. And now there's a lot of theories that that's not even a good thing to do. So now, now you're really getting me going here because there there's 30 major league major league teams and there was at least a couple teams that never allowed their players to ice this was 15 years ago um and then i actually got hurt one year and i was i was popping not bad pills but like ibuprofen way too much and all of a sudden the year after i got hurt i stopped icing i did certain recovery exercise after i pitched and i only took pills when i needed them and all of a sudden i was like incredibly healthy the rest of my career but it but to me it's it's always interesting when teams have different research but that ice the ice thing has been that's years in the making that's that's like not news to me i'm like man that's my that's my career i replaced ice with like fish oil and all of a sudden my arm was but that's what on the individual level i think players are are trying to figure that out and then at the team level teams that's a huge advantage when you can have really good research and implement it and educate your players as well because that does carry into their offseason. Yeah, like you said, too, I think, you know, we're talking about an average player, we're talking about depth. Like, if your depth can be a veteran that stays healthy versus some, you know, draft pick in the sixth round or under, like, it makes a huge difference. It does. Like, having a healthy contributing player on your team, even if it's one or two guys, can make a huge difference. And particularly because, like, that's where the financial edge is in free agency, right? It's these old guys that nobody wants to commit big money to that, you know, you can't risk the monster contract to, but could come in and be, like, a really good player and potentially for not just that one-year flyer, but for, like, a couple of seasons, you know, even if you have to keep cycling through them, you could just have this kind of group on your roster that is these one-year older guys, but you're, re- you know, really confident in – can be healthy because in you know with the with the developments in nutrition and sports science and recovery and all those kinds of things they're not it's not like it was when a 30 30 31 year old guy immediately was just done yeah one more example you know real quick that i thought was fascinating is a little bit different but kind of the same is the 49ers started intentionally signing guys coming off injuries because it was again it was about we're kind of underestimating recovery and how guys can, you know, the prevailing theory for it was, oh, you tore your ACL, your, your career is over. And obviously that's, that's not the case anymore. Um, it kind of didn't work out for them. It led to them signing guys like Jared McKinnon and some deals that did not work out. Um, Quan Alexander was another one who I guess, you know, was decent for a little bit. But anyways, it was them trying to, to take advantage of this edge. It did get them a great year out of Jason Verrett. So, like, there are, there are a lot of edge cases like that that teams are, are definitely exploring. But I think those, yeah, those are all all worthwhile. And even if you miss on some, it's about the payoff and those other ones. And the Verrett payoff may have been good. By the way, Verrett, once again, a free agent. It was tough for us to rank him. I think he's in the 130s or 140s. Uh, when he plays football, he's great, but he's coming off yet another uh, torn ACL. Uh, running backs and safeties to still discuss. So let's start with running backs where you have a running back slash wide receiver slash safety, Cordero Patterson atop the list. So yeah, we never talk running backs here on the PFF NFL podcast. We'll give them at least a minute here, but you've got Patterson, you've got Leonard Fournette, James Connor, who signed for what? $1.5 million last year. And this is, this is the nature of the running back market. He was number, he was the number seven graded running back for us last year. Number seven, most valuable running back last year. 
and he was an afterthought and he goes out to Arizona and has a really nice season free agent again. So anything going to happen with this, uh, this running back market? I think a correction there could be teams like valuing your number two back just in in part, just to spell your top guy. But like you mentioned, James Conner, I think like a Jamal Williams, you know, two year, $6 million deal. I think Detroit probably views that as a success, like those type of deals. And I think, you know, you're not going to get the big, you know, starter Le'Veon Bell type contract, but I think there actually is probably maybe a a small market inefficiency. And like, yeah, like if you could have offered James Conner 2 million instead of 1.25 that he got last year and he scored 17 touchdowns for you and and is a true three down back if you need him to be when Chase Edmonds gets hurt. um, I think those guys could could get decent deals. And I think Cordero Patterson should get a strong deal because we we know if you use him well, he's pretty productive. Does everybody else look at Cordell Patterson's season this year and like, oh, that's what we were missing? Or do they look at that and you're like, well, that only works in Atlanta. Like, we don't run – this is a different offense. You can't just like port Cordell Patterson over to this offense and get the same like hybrid super weapon. I'm just interested in what his market is given how how his career has gone so far and how sort of specific the deployment was in that Falcons offense. I think it does because they're obviously kind of the, the wide zone and, and Chicago was inside zone and, and New England is kind of gap and power. So it was kind of fitting in that Arthur Smith offense. But I guess to his benefit, you know, the entire NFL is trying to hire guys that run that offense. So that helps. True. Yeah, that definitely will. So you've got guys like Patterson, Melvin Gordon, Rashad Penny with his late breakout. You know, what what happened down the stretch that Penny figured it out and was just a big play machine. He's only 26. There's your former first rounder. Marlon Mack, I think, could be a really nice value coming off of injury. I think when he is healthy, he's just a really good, just a really good runner. Doesn't add as much in the in the pass game. But there are some backs out there to uh to round out the depth. James White as your pass catcher if he uh doesn't hang him up. And then safeties, uh, starting at the top, you've got Marcus Williams, who we always love, always grades well at PFF. Forget about the Minnesota Miracle, it was just one play. But Marcus Williams at eight overall, Jesse Bates at 11, Tyron Matthew at 17. And uh, yeah, there are, there are some high-end safeties here potentially available. Yeah, but like I said, I, I do think teams are, are, are kind of afraid of, of spending big money at safety in the free agent market. I think Matthew will probably get a strong deal. I think he'll have a handful of suitors. Um, I think Marcus Williams probably makes it out of New Orleans and will probably get a, a decent deal as well. Um yeah, yeah, I already mentioned Bates in the franchise tag. I just think, unfortunately, there's 22 guys on our top 200 list, and, and that's the issue, is that you know over 10% is all at safety, and you could get a guy like Xavier Woods for a fraction of the price you could get a Marcus Williams. And like, is he that much worse of a deep third, kind of, kind of ball-hawking safety? Maybe. I mean, Marcus Williams is a very good player, but if you can get him for, you know, four million dollars per year i think i have it whereas marcus williams i had that at four times at 16 i'd probably sign xavier woods he's a great example he's at 106 on our list terrell edmonds another former first round pick who maybe shouldn't have been a first round pick but uh you know he's gotten you know he's been solid it's just a whole bunch of solid players um who have had some ups and downs but justin reed and uh devin mccourty who's a little bit older but you, you do have all these other potential guys that you wouldn't probably have to break the bank for. So uh, Marcus May may be an interesting one. He's at 44 on our list. Anything with him, the the jet safety who uh, dropped off a little bit last year? 
Yeah, so he tore his Achilles in November, but, you know, I think if I'm him, I, I point to Cam Akers and C.J. Uzama and say, you know, Achilles recoveries are, are at a new phase in the NFL. I think he probably still has to go with the one-year flyer route, um, or maybe he wants to because he's not going to get the market he's looking for. Um, but he's interesting. I mean, he, him and guys like Jaron Curse, like guys that – are, you know, can kind of cover and can kind of play down in the box if you want them to. I think that maybe is where the value is going to go is teams like the, the, the true just deep third free safety like a Marcus Williams, as great as he is, I think they want they, they justify to themselves they can spend more if the guy's involved in more plays, really. The famous Jerry Jones line, why he drafted Zeke Elliott over Jalen Ramsey. Zeke's going to touch it 20, 25 times. How, how often is Ramsey going to touch the ball? Hopefully right? zero, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, right. Hopefully zero, and that would be uh, that would be a win. Or Tra- Trayvon Diggs touches it eleven times a year. You've got, <laughs> you've got value there. Anything else, Sam? This free agent class. You you haven't even touched on special teamers, Steve. Just the, the disrespect for kickers and punters. I purposely ignore all special teams. All harsh, right, harsh let's go. Fair. Who? How many kickers and punters made our top two hundred list? None. Okay. How about fullbacks? I don't think we put a fullback in there either, did we? We did not. Yeah. No. How many fullbacks are actually in the NFL these days? Like eight that play? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's about eight. We'll have to do a fullback show. We'll get mm. PFT commenter on there. He's the expert. <laughs> he probably knows more about fullbacks than PFF, not going to lie. Well, this was great. Always appreciate you having you, Brad, and getting your insight. Uh, go follow Brad's work at PFF underscore Brad over on Twitter. Does a lot of writing on the site over at pff.com. Get PFF now on this YouTube channel that Brad's on as well. So a lot of good stuff from Brad and a lot of good stuff when it comes to free agency and everything that we're covering at pff.com. Don't forget 25% off using the promo code NFLPOD. 25% off NFLPOD. Get your draft guide. Get all the extra free agent coverage. Get access to the special content at pff.com. So you get your 25% off using the promo. NFL pod. All right. We'll be back on Monday with no game to recap, no game to recap, Sam. So it's just more off season goodness. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate you stopping by. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Do you have anything else, Sam? No, quiet. Good. We're out. You have nothing else to say. No. What else do I have to remind people about? Well, I think that's it. You know, the usual email us at uh, nflpodcast.pff.com. Follow us on Twitter at, uh, what is it, pffnflpod. And we're also on TikTok now, which I believe is the same address, right? At uh, silent at uh, pffnflpod, I think, is also the the TikTok name. You'll find it. Can somebody, can we get a a Gen Z or tell me, how how do I get TikTok to not auto-play videos as soon as you log in? Apparently you can't because it just did it right on Even me as a fringe, I'm not Gen Z, but I'm close. It's like, it's very overwhelming. Like, I I, I can't do the timeline. I I guess I'm a boomer at heart, but it's it's, it's, it's too much. It's it's pretty rough. So, okay, the TikTok. Old men yell at phones and stop it, TikTok. Stop it, but I guess we're we're on. We're on the talk over here. The TikTok address is slightly different. It's at PFF NFL podcast, not at PFF NFL pod. Podcast. Okay. So follow us on TikTok. So I guess follow us on TikTok and uh, we'll be providing some great TikTokian content (laughs) or whatever. It's going to be awesome. Somebody was asking me what an Insta DM mention was the other day. I I don't know. I put a lot of words together. Hmm. 
You, it's you and Bill Belichick, right? The what's face or insta face or whatever he was yeah. he used to say. Uh, Brad, you're you're more millennial than we are. So, uh, do you have any thoughts on Kyler Murray scrubbing the Instagram? What does that <laughs> What does that mean deep down? Yeah, you know, I think that whole situation is interesting. My my take would be he's still going to be a Cardinal. I, I think it probably is like setting the stage for the, this extension negotiation. I, I think he I noticed said. last year that. You know, Baker Mayfield, Lamar Jackson didn't get extensions. Neither did themselves any favors and, and, and are probably going to have a tough negotiation again. Um, so I think he's probably setting the stage now. Like, let's let's get let's get ready to rumble. Let's, let's get after it. See, I can read. I can read Gen Z. I know. Uh, we also theorized, Brad, when the, the Cardinals had they didn't they rescrub on their end, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> right. So. So what do you think that process was? Like Steve Kime is making this call from the top and calling the social media director or the social media director who under- understands the landscape of Instagram knows that the follow-up is to scrub Kyler stuff. So did the social media director go rogue or did Steve Kime direct what the Instagram account needed to do? I think the social media folks come up with the ideas, but I actually, I, I've heard from some teams, I'm sure it's different everywhere, that they have to run it by like key decision makers before they do things. <laughs> uh, of course, of course they have. If you're going to do something that's going to piss off your franchise quarterback, even as something as petty as social media, of course <laughs> you have to get GM sign off. Yeah, Mr. Kyle, is it okay if I delete some photos of Kyler Murray? It's really going to make him mad. Is this the play? I really uh, hope. I respected it. I, I think the, the the NFL teams. I, I, let's give them a shout out. They had a good year this year with social media. I think they're they're they're, they're making strides. I really yeah. hope that yeah. that's like an in person meeting though. Like some guy has to go knock on the door with the phone in hand to like Steve kind to the GM's office and be like, "Hey, so here's what I want to do." And like literally is walking him through the phone thing like like he's an old like a complete you know boomer. I, I would like, love he's it. He's negotiating that's like an eight figure deal. He's like, let me put this yeah. on hold really quick. I got. <laughs> Are there multiple options? Like we can unfollow him. We could delete pictures. We could go the other way and actually praise him. Like there's, there's a lot of options on the table there. You know, they did say the two picks they saved were both of Kyler Murray. So it was kind of like they antagonized him, but they also kind of showed him some love. It was uh, I wonder how he felt about that. That's, that's a good point. All I know is we've come a long way from the old days of just, you know, holding out of off season workouts and stuff. Now we've got uh social media, passive aggressiveness, the new CBA. So maybe that's why people are yeah. getting creative. You got to take it to Instagram. So, yeah, I know we were leaving a little while ago, but it just came to mind. We got to get Brad's take there. So appreciate the insight there on Instagram. All right. We're definitely out for real. We'll see you guys on Monday. Appreciate it.